This uh, is the first Tuesday night since uh, Robin Williams killed himself. So I just thought that I wanted to name that as the first, uh, it's, there's a before and an after. And, and uh, I, like probably everyone in this room, most people have felt very sad at the, at the passing of, of Robin Williams. And it's, it always raises when anyone takes their life, which it seems obvious that that's what he did. And now there's all kinds of reports coming out and about that. It still raises a kind of open question, you know, what, what happens? What, what happened? And no one ever will know the intricacies of one person's um, battle with their demons and with their mind. Clearly, it's a matter of battling with their minds. And no one knows to what extent uh, an impulse to, uh, to end one's life is driven, the engine is driven by... Uh, by organic or physical uh, impulses and how much that affects one's uh, thinking and clarity of mind, etc., and how much one's um, thinking determines the effect on one's body. It is not possible to know completely. But what we can know is that um, every single human being uh, suffers. Every single human being has demons or has things about our life that uh, are difficult to bear. This is the first noble truth. Uh, no, one, no one is immune to, to problems with our bodies. No one is immune to problems with our minds. So if you thought you were the only one, get a life. No, just kidding. We're all in this together. If you are born, the definition of birth is a leading cause of problems, and as well as joys, joys and sorrows. And yet the, the, the teachings and the reason we are all here, and I have a very strong sense, in spite of all of the, the many, many uh, pains of life and difficulties of life, that if we keep meeting, if we keep sitting quietly with each other, letting ourselves seep in emptiness or openness and presence and stillness and in wakefulness. If we keep doing that, I think it'll be really good for us. And it doesn't mean that we won't have all kinds of problems in our lives, but it is, it is this ground of immediate presence that we reclaim when we sit that seems to not only help reintroduce us and remind us of the awesomeness of life, the beauty of life, the, the, the mystery of life, but also gives us a ground, a firm ground, to be able to meet the joys and the sorrows with, um, with some understanding, with some caring and open-heartedness and it's not, this is not a new age thing. This is something people have been doing now for centuries after centuries. And we would, there would not be a living dharma. There would not be a transmission of teachings if 
people were not deeply, deeply moved and touched and grounded uh, through the practice and and then overflowed with their with their call, with their with their shout from the hilltops, stay here, stay here, don't go, don't go into the as Gendon Rinpoche says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant when when he's he or she is already resting quietly at home, right on your own cushion. Don't go, don't let your mind leave your body, don't leave your house. Stay home. I don't mean literally. I'm glad you left your house tonight. <laughs> glad you're here. I actually really believe that if we did this, I feel as though I have one conversation with every single person that I talk to. Uh, to some degree. You know, there are obviously nuances. Everybody's story and life and situation is so unique. But the one recurring problem in everyone's mind, in everyone's life, I would say the one, there are many recurring problems, but the one, number one most frequent recurring problem is the inability to know the difference between reality, which is very immediate, very simple, and, and, uh, and you could call it false reality, virtual reality, the reality of, of the um, stories that our mind plays. I have somebody that I've been working with for many years who's been suffering terribly, terribly, with um, migraine headaches and vertigo. And this person is a, a super, super intelligent person, kind of a, one of these stratospheric kind of famous people who, in, a, in his circle of, of, uh, of, um, of expertise. And yet, he has been literally brought to his knees, completely humbled, by the frequency of these, of these um, um, migraine headaches and the vertigo. And it's one thing to have those migraine headaches, and it's one thing to have whatever it is that you have in your life. And I, I think that we all have things. Anybody not have things? <laughs> but it's one thing to have these things, but it's another what we do with it, what happens to us. And very innocently, because, because in so many situations, this person's life has, uh, has uh, devolved to the point where he, he is unable to make any plans because he could, he could go somewhere or do something, and he might find himself right in the middle of that situation, be completely laid out and unable to function. And if he reflected on it, he would see that there's always some, there's always help that comes in some form, that he'd get through it. But his mind has got, has become so afraid of that kind of eventuality that he's become frozen in a, in um, an inability to live life in a state of constant terror about when the next one's, the other shoe's going to drop. And our conversation again and again and again is, yes, the other shoe is going to drop. You, something is going to happen. 
And while you're busy, and it's easy to talk about, it's another to actually navigate, but while you're busy being caught in that, in that anticipatory anxiety, life is what's happening. And each time that I say, what's happening right this moment? And even what's happening, what's the experience of this anxiety? What's the experience of this sense of being frozen? I understand your situation. What is your immediate experience? And he starts to feel it. And then he feels it more. And then I have him shift his attention away. And then I have, because it gets overwhelmed. And then come back. And we stay here, we stay here, we stay here, we stay here. We stay right with the unfolding of life, right where it's at. And all of a sudden the light comes in. I'm not, I'm not having a migraine right now. The, the future has, is unborn. I've been living in an imagined future, and I've missed, I've missed my life. And all of a sudden, his heart opens, and he, every, there's all kinds of possibility, and nothing changed in his situation. What changed was his state of mind. What changed is the way that he was relating to it. He was as we all do in our own way, he was adding the extra arrow of fear and judgment and hopelessness to this already painful situation. And so what our attention, our moment-to-moment caring attention, caring attention to our bodies and our mind, what it does ideally in the long run, and it's a process, that's why we practice, it interrupts, it interrupts our mental fixations. It helps us to see them. It helps us to see what our mind is doing rather than incarnating in our mind, rather than living out of our mind, rather than becoming so entranced by virtual reality that we, can't, we can no longer sense that our life is really about the, um, the only place where we can find life is in our immediate uh, experience. But if we are immediate, if we are here, it means that we have to die. It means that we have to die to our ideas. It means, means that we have, to, we have to be willing to not be defined by our memories, by our plans. It means that we can have all of our memories and plans. We can have all of our identities, but we have to be willing to see the discontinuity of them, to see that, that in the present moment we're nobody in particular. We're just ourselves. We're not our titles, we're not our bank accounts, we're not our accomplishments, we're not anything. We are just a field of aware presence. We are a field of love and compassion. All the qualities that can flow from, from, our, from our nature. And it seems that each of our nature and how life flows through each of us individually seems to flow much more freely when our life is oriented in a, very, in a very continuous way, oriented toward this kind of openness. This, uh, there's a kind of famous little Dharma story that's um, about a, a woman who was living in Burma while her and she was she was mostly supporting her husband while he was doing some major research 
on Buddha Dharma, on the teachings of the Buddha, and he was a, a scholar and doing, and while he was doing the scholarly thing, she was practicing. She was meditating. He was the, the big mucky muck scholar, and she was the, the meditator. And she, the, the, the husband was, was uh, being in, I think it was Jack Cornfield went to interview the husband or talk to him in Burma. I think it was when he was doing his book on, for his uh, graduate thesis back in, uh, back in the 60s was, that, was for, that first came out as the book called, uh, a, it was called uh, Living Buddhist Masters. Now it's called Living Dharma. It's all about these different teachers. So he interviewed this guy, and, and right while he was having this conversation, his wife, who was standing in the kitchen, just kind of piddling around, she looked up from what she was doing, and she said these very pithy words, at least they're pithy to me. She said, I don't understand why people prefer the quicksand of somebodyness rather than the firm ground of emptiness. Why do people prefer the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness? Part of our human condition, part of our dukkha, part of our suffering, is that we prefer, we are trying so hard to be somebody. Trying so hard to, to, uh, to wrap ourselves in a secure, in a, a, a cocoon-like identity so that we can be impervious to all the... the uh, that we can be above it all, we can be the best. And so our mind is constantly in a measuring world of good, better, best. And if I can somehow become the best, uh, I can be praised, I can, I can be successful, I can have ple- all the ple- pleasure, I can have, uh, what, yeah, gain. All the, the four of the eight worldly wins, if I can just have the pleasurable side of it, uh, it depends on if I'm, and if I really become the the great one, the special one. It's all about special. Then I can, then I can be the, um, then I can be protected. So our desire to be special, to be, to kind of build ourselves up, to fortify ourselves, what we call our ego, our self view. The Buddha called it sakaya ditti. It is driven, as almost everything we do, it's driven by uh, self-love. It's driven by trying to find as much security as we can. But unfortunately for all of us, and I have a feeling, although I can't, I don't know about Robin Williams, he clearly had all those, he had the praise. He was a beautiful guy. I've, all, all day long today I've been meeting people that, that knew him, and the last one I spoke to before I came in here was my brother, who was a friend of his, who he used to, unfortunately, they used to party together in Aspen, Colorado. He used to go out, they used to go out um, drinking, but just a little side story. Well, I'll get back to my theme, but a little side story is that uh, my brother ran a, a bar and restaurant in Aspen, Colorado, a very well-known one, and 
when Robin Williams would come to the restaurant, he would go and introduce himself to every single worker and ask how they were and, and strike up a conversation. There was not a person that he would not connect with. And he was just, he was, he was so keenly sensitive to, uh, to the, uh, the hierarchy of the way people in his position are, are um, somehow become cut off, become, uh, th- think they're, they're um, well, I, I wanted to say something kind of, <laughs> I won't say it, think they're better than other people. And then this, the, uh, I just, it was so funny that I heard that little stream, and then I was listening to the radio, and there was an anecdote shared on the radio that, that uh, Robin, that they had filmed uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, a great deal of it was filmed at uh, Channel 2 here in San Francisco, where they basically, for two or three weeks, they took over the studio, and every day they would bring in the, the fancy meal for the whole for all the the movie workers, and uh, when they first arrived and they brought in the big meal, the uh, Robin Williams' publicist or his agent or somebody came and grabbed him at at, the, at lunchtime and and kind of pulled him to the to the meal, and then he noticed that she was pulling him to the front of the line, and. Just as they, and this was recounted by one of the news people at, at Channel Two. Just as she got him to the front of the line, she says, "I don't want to be. I don't want to go before anyone else." And then he walked to the back of the line and just stood there with everyone else, just going through the line. And so it's that that real sensitivity, and everyone speaks about his his goodness, uh, and of course his his humor and brilliance, and how both are just so important in our life. But anyway, he had, he had the four parts of the eight worldly wins. He had the gain, he had the, the fame, he had the pleasure, he had the um, um, gain praise. He had the praise. These are the, that's what everyone aims for in our attempt to, to secure ourselves. But he... Um, But he realized, I have no doubt that he realized, that uh, if you are born, you have eight worldly wins. Everybody has eight worldly wins. We have praise and blame. We have fame and shame or disrepute. We have pleasure, pain. We have uh, loss, what did I, I forgot. You, You get the point. I always lose one somewhere along the line. And how, how it is that we, how it is that we navigate those winds as they blow through our lives. That quicksand of somebodyness. As if you're somebody, you're gonna, you're going to have all those winds. How do we navigate that? And the Buddha was very clear about how we navigate it. He said that if, when you see, first turn your attention not away from life the way it is and toward just trying to isolate yourself and hide away in, behind your gates, in your home, in your cars, in your, in your smartphone. Open your eyes. Look. See. Look with unvarnished view what it means to be born. And you'll see 
if you are born, you will have sickness, you'll have old age, you'll have dying, you'll have death, you'll have, you'll have uh, frustrated desire, you will have, um, you will have, uh, you will have very, very shaky pride. You will be, if you are born, you will be insecure. That comes with the territory. Is anybody in this room immune to that? Now, does everyone here try to find security? Of course we do. We love ourselves. But often the medicine that we take to find our sense of security is that which actually keeps us, keeps us um, more insecure. What we end up doing is trying harder to be special when we, are, we could not be more special you know, as I look around this room, and I, I know so many people now that have been coming here, and I've met you on retreat, or I've met you here, we've talked, we've, and you could not be more beautiful. Each person. The ones I don't know, you're beautiful too. But yet in our minds, in that virtual version of ourselves, we're always trying to somehow thinking we're not so special. We're not such a unique expression of life because we're busy trying to be better than the next person. And then it becomes this loop of, of projections and ideas. And what's lost in the middle of that is how amazing it is that you are yourself and how amazing it is that you came to be here. That's just one part of it. But the Buddha said, turn your attention toward the fact of this, this uh, your life has difficulty, and everyone experiences insecurity. Because the, if you don't do this, what gets followed is that not only is there the pain of life, not only are there the worldly winds, not only is there loss, not only is there Shame, not only is there insecurity, but the mind, if it does not turn toward it, it turns away from it. And when it turns away from it, it's as though it intensifies every element of the, of the pain of life. It adds, it's, it's sometimes described as a second arrow. Not only do we, we sometimes we judge ourselves, we... We, um, we contract. But the Buddha sec- suggested that what we tend to do is instead of turning toward life, sitting in the middle of it, which you do on Tuesdays or whenever you sit, you don't run from s- silence, you don't run from reality, you just connect with it. You feel it intimately, directly. But when you don't deal with it directly, your mind as he suggested, your mind will, will go into a state of craving, of, of hoping, of expecting, of wishing, of wanting. And that craving, what he called craving, tanha, this force of craving, this force of hunger, he said it, happen, it, it presents itself three ways. And I think everyone has some version of this. 
presents itself as a craving for pleasure, for sense experience. And of course, we know what happens when we, we make sense pleasure, as beautiful as pleasure is in this world, as, as many ways as there are to have pleasure, when we make that our, meth, our medicine, when that becomes that which we're devoted to in order to help us feel better, even though it does temporarily, what it does is it turns our relationship of it with the present moment, the only place where we have reality, it turns it into a, a place that we're just passing through on our way to something more important, which is an, our imagined future. It turns our stomachs into, into, um, into tight fists of holding and waiting and suspended happiness that says, I can't quite be happy now, but I will be when I satisfy my desire. So we literally train ourselves in being tense. We train ourselves in being dependent on the future that never arrives. And we live in a kind of imagination because there is no future. There is no future. There's just this. Everything else is imaginary. The only way we know the future is by a thought in the present. So it puts us into a state of suspended happiness, it puts us into a state of dissatisfaction, and it reinforces the the sense that where we're living right now isn't quite manageable or satisfactory. And it's so sad, since this is the only life we have, is right now. So if if I can't find my seat right here, where am I going to find it? Where am I going to find that relief? Because there really is no future to rely on for relief. If I can't find it here, I can't find it anywhere. So that's one way, a desire for sense pleasures. And the, way it, the second way that it manifests is the desire for um, becoming. The di- desire, we enter, we desire for a state of becoming. Of, of, it's called bhava. It's this sense of being... Um, being entranced in this view. Remember, we're always and already here. This is the only place we ever have been, we will ever be. But this state of becoming, this craving for becoming, recreates in our minds, and see if this is true. Don't believe anything I say. See whether it's true. Creates in our mind a view that we are somebody creates a whole identity. I'm somebody that has come from the past. I'm passing through here on my way to the future. That's a, that is a story. That's a, that's a dream. It doesn't exist. There is only an unfolding now, but our mind enters into that state of becoming. Again, we're fixated on a future that never arrives because time is always now. So again, we've, we've abandoned the only place where we can find the ground of home and here and wonder and beauty and stability is that firm ground of emptiness. We've abandoned that for another. It's like that poem from Derek Walcott where he says, somewhere, oh shoot, maybe I have it with me. The time will come, he says, when with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, 
and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. So in, any, in either case, state of craving for sense pleasures, a state of becoming, becoming the world's greatest whatever, organizing our whole life about uh, when we reach the end of the rainbow, it puts us in a state of reactivity to life. It turns the present moment, as Eckhart Tolle says, into a pass-through on our way to someplace else, or it turns it into an obstacle, or it turns the present, the place that we live, into the enemy, getting in the way of, of our happiness. This is the trance of becoming. This is the trance of the wanting mind. The third way that it presents itself the cause of mental suffering that, that, that compounds or exacerbates the, already thing, the things that are already difficult to bear, the extra arrows that really turn us inside out. The third way it represents itself is the craving for a state of non-becoming. Craving for everything to stop. The extreme version of that is craving for non-existence completely. In the simplest way, it's just wanting to shut things out, close things off. But in that extreme case, it is the craving for suicide. It's, it's the suicidality that is in some way, and I would not want to just reduce Robin Williams' state to just craving for non-becoming, but it fits to a certain degree in that what the Buddha described as the chief cause of suffering. Craving for sense pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, craving for non-existence. A kind of, a kind of state of mind that is so focused on getting away, getting, to be, getting somewhere else, that it turns the present moment into something unbearable. Of course, this craving for non-becoming, the engine of that is because there was something, there is something that is very, very that either was unbearable or something that is too hard to bear in the present moment. And many of us face those moments. But if we listen to the, the teachings, and that's why I think if we just keep stopping, it'll, there will be some benefit. But if you, hear, if you listen to the teachings, what is the, what, is the, what is the prescription for dealing with that which is hard to bear? You turn toward it. What is the prescription for getting caught in that state of craving? Is to let go. Is to let be. Is to open to your life. 
And we're just not, we're not trained to do that. We're trained to, to fight with reality, to try to get away from reality, to try to have a different reality. We love ourselves, but this kind of love is misplaced. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. So the teachings say, stop. Turn toward your pain. Embrace it. Let it break your heart. As that Hafez poem that I read all the time, absolutely clear, he says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it season and ferment you as few human or divine ingredients can. And he ends it by saying, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so sweet, my voice so tender, my need of the divine or my need of the ground of emptiness absolutely clear, my need of presence, my need of of care, of caring, absolutely clear. So why do we have sangha? We have sangha to remind us to stay here. Because if, if, as I often tell people on retreats, when we don't keep like-minded company, you don't have to be Buddhist, they don't have to, you don't, it doesn't have to be here, but if you don't have people that say, stay here, eat, you will love again the stranger who is yourself. If you don't have people in your life that say, here, I care for you just the way you are, you, here you are valued for even your pain. The whole range of your experience is valued. If you don't have people to do that, it's a, it's a Dharma desert. It's a, it's, our world is one where people are moving too fast. There's not some, we're not held so easily. Everybody's escaping. So here we say, don't escape. I think we actually need, there are sanghas that do this. We need to as a sangha, as a community, we need to be we need to be there for every one of us that has some time, like Robin Williams, where there's something just impossible to bear. We have to be here. We have to have some kind of group. I'm hoping something can come out of this, where we have an exploratory exploratory group where we we feel, figure out how we can create some kind of network to be available. And then the, the people in our community will be humble enough to admit. And there have been people who are humble enough to admit. And we've talked to, we've asked for different things in the Sangha when people had special needs. But we, I think we need to actually institutionalize it a little bit so that, that we're not just, that we're actually loving each other and caring each other. Because what, what heals our hearts is to, is to be connected, to be held. And while we're busy running away from here, we, we lose that. We're running away from this present moment. So I would love for us to be some, have some kind of a support group or support team that, uh, where any of you that have really difficult uh, situations or very difficult mind states will have a, somebody to talk to. That's what I want. I, I, it, I don't know. It's, it's so interesting. While we're... I, I don't want to get into that. I, I, I can easily get into speculating about Robin Williams, and I don't want to. I don't know. I'm just very sad that he's... that that extraordinary being, so, such a glorious being, 
such a bodhisattva, such a, uh, such a gift to this world, loss was not able to, to uh, maintain that ground of beauty and wholeness. Because he lives in the same world we do. So, it's sad. But I think we can do a little bit, both for ourselves and each other, to, uh, to bring some equanimity, some ground, some compassion to uh, our universal predicament. So that's all I really have to say. I'll just finally say one, just the simple words, no mud, no lotus. I think that was Thich Nhat Hanh who said that. And Rumi who said, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in each moment. So let's just spend a few moments tasting the taste of eternity, enveloping ourselves in caring, Resting in the ground of emptiness, where there is no separation, there is no inside, no outside, there's just love. May all beings know the cessation of mental suffering. May all beings turn toward the truth, relax the tight fist of craving, and cultivate the path moment by moment. May all beings be liberated. As always, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your generosity. Thanks for your presence. And uh, another reminder, did somebody, did, did somebody mention the day-long on the 23rd? Day-long uh, retreat I'll be doing at Spirit Rock on Saturday the 23rd. It's an introduction to insight meditation. So bring all your friends and bring yourselves and enjoy a day at Spirit Rock. It's a beautiful place and beautiful time to practice. And anyway, thank you. Maybe I can't speak. I just wanted to thank you because... Um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.